For the last few weeks, we've been talking together about this idea of the whole story, about how God wants to be at work in the stories of our lives, to transform them, to make them better, to make them conform to what he had planned for us all along. And if you've been with us, we, we looked at a couple different things along the way. We saw the way that people's lives had changed. In the first week, when we looked at this, we looked at the story of a woman whose story was bad. It was horrible. It was shameful, even. And her story was changed by just Jesus asking her six simple, a six-word question. Will you give me a drink? And that brought that woman in from a place of being ostracized and being shamed and put her back onto the path that God had intended for her all along. And it was just an amazing transformation in that woman's life. It took a story that she was ashamed of. And because Jesus entered into her story, it turned it around and now her story was good news. And that's something that God wants to do with us. And we're going to come back again today to just how God does that. Last week, we looked again at the power of stories. And we looked at this passage in Mark where it was three successive stories where Jesus does a really big deal thing. And in the Gospel of Mark, um, Mark likes to organize things in patterns of three. That's kind of how he tells you, hey, something big deal is happening here. And then he actually breaks that pattern in the sequence that we saw, where he does three big deal stories, and then he adds in a fourth one that is the actual punchline. So if you were here with us, you know that the first story was one where Jesus and his disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee, not in a lake. This is a representation, okay? But they were crossing the Sea of Galilee, and this huge storm came up. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, and his disciples are completely freaking out. Because not only are they going to drown, but to people in the ancient world, the sea and the storms represented powers that were completely ungovernable, completely beyond them. And Jesus just wakes up and is like, whatever, and speaks to the wind and the waves, and they stop. And the disciples are completely overwhelmed by this. Like, he speaks to the the wind and the waves, and they stop. So it showed that Jesus had power over something that was beyond them. When he arrives on the other side of the lake, he's met by a guy who is filled with demons. And because he was so afflicted by these demons, they would chain him up for his own protection and protection around him. But he would break the the chains and be a threat to himself and everyone else. Well, Jesus, having that kind of power, he was able to cast the demons out of this poor man. And if you know the story, he sent them into a herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs ran down a cliff and died in the Sea of Galilee. So those are dying pigs in the sea there. So it showed that Jesus had power, one, over the storm and the sea. And second, he had power over demons, things that are just beyond people. And then as he gets out of the, goes back across the lake, back to the part of of Israel where he lived, he's met by some officials and they tell him, look, this big deal guy, Jairus, his daughter is super sick and we know that you can heal him. And Jairus himself comes and pleads with Jesus. And the way the story goes is Jesus is delayed, and by the time Jesus gets to Jairus and his daughter, the little girl is dead. And again, Jesus is like, no, no, she's just sleeping. And everybody's like, come on, she's dead, really. And Jesus goes up to her and says, little girl, get up, and she comes back to life. So three completely unbeatable things Jesus beats. 
Three things that are beyond our control, Jesus shows that he has control over. The wind and the waves, demons, and even death itself. Jesus shows that he has the power over that. And yet, in the way that Mark structured those stories, and this is where we ended up last week, the most important thing that Jesus does is not raising that girl from the dead. The most powerful thing he does is not casting demons out. The strongest thing that Jesus does isn't even with the wind and the waves. In fact, it happens with a woman who bumps into Jesus while he's walking through the crowd on his way to Jairus' house. And this is a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and unable to do anything about it. And she thought, man, if I could just even not have Jesus touch me, if I could just touch the edge of his, his jacket, of his coat, I'll be healed. And she was. And she was. Jesus notices this, and, and he says, I, I felt power go out of me. I, who, I want to talk to this person. And his disciples are like, oh, come on, man. You're in a crowd. People are bumping you. Of course somebody touched you. And they, they knew they wanted to get onto Jairus' house. But Jesus knew that there was something even more important here. And so what Jesus says, he says, who touched my clothes? And then he goes and finds the woman. And the woman comes, and as the text said, it, she told Jesus her whole story. And that's where we ended up last week. And what Mark wanted us to know, and you to know today if you weren't here last week, is the most powerful and important thing that Jesus did wasn't that he stilled the waves. It wasn't that he cast the demon out of that guy. Even the little girl that he raised from dead. The most powerful and important thing Jesus did was he stopped and he listened to this woman's story. And that there's something incredibly powerful about the gift that we can give to one another, the gift of simple kindness, of just being willing to listen to one another's stories, that we can unite ourselves with one of the most powerful things that Jesus has ever done by simply doing that. So that was the last two weeks. But here's the thing. I'm curious as to what happens with these people. What happened to the guy who had the demons go out of him and into the pigs? We know what happened to the pigs. What happened to the guy? What happened to the woman, the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well and went back and talked to all of her people? What happened to Jairus' daughter beyond age 12? You know, we want to know what happens next. Where does the story end up? Where does the story go? You know, we're curious because we're engaged with these people. These are great stories. And anytime you get to know someone, anytime you, you, you want to know how their story turned out. And so I looked. And you know what the Bible has to say about all of these other people's stories? That's what it has to say. Nothing. We don't find out what these people do at all. And in fact, I, 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 did, a little, I, I did a little research. And I, I may have missed something, but... Every person that Jesus touches and transforms, we never hear how their story ultimately ends up. We don't get the rest of that person's life. We get a very vivid story of how Jesus touches them and transforms them and sets them on a path to something new and something great. But God in his wisdom never, ever gave us, okay, so Jairus' daughter, she grew up, she, she thought she was going to marry this guy. It didn't work out. She married this guy. They had a great time. They moved to another nice place along the Sea of Galilee. They, they, we don't learn any of that stuff along the way. She just drops out of the story, and that's it. So the thing is, though, is, is, is we want to know. 
we want to know how the story ends, right? And I think we want to know how should the story end? Because intuitively, we look at these stories and we think, man, if Jesus touched somebody that powerfully, I want to know how their life turns out. Because I'd kind of like to know, how do I stay on that path? How do I get to where this person experienced that, right? And yet, the Bible never tells us explicitly what happens to any of these people. And so I, I was thinking about this this week, and, and here's, here's my best guess as to why these stories work out this way. And again, I, I don't have chapter and verse for this, but this is just me kind of thinking about it and praying and hoping I'm right. So we'll find out. Um, here, here's the thing. Power, stories have power. And especially they give us patterns. And there is good news that bad stories are predictable. Because if you think about it, medical science is completely based on the fact that bad stories are predictable. You have this set of, um, you have this set of symptoms. You have this set of test results. It means this. That when we break, when things go wrong, they tend to go wrong in predictable, anticipatable patterns. But here's what I've seen, and it happens throughout the Bible, and I've seen this in my own life and in the lives of others that I've been alongside of, is that when God is at work in an individual's life, there is no one predictable pattern for how God will be at work in my life or John's life or anybody else's life. That when things go wrong, they tend to go wrong in certain traditional ways. But when things go right... When God is really gets a hold of us and really begins to be at work, no two lives are ever alike. And that what God wants to do in my life, in your life, in each of us that are here today is going to be different. Sometimes there's going to be a lot of overlap, but when God is working, he is creative, he's doing something new, and he's doing something that is highly individual to each of us. And so I think, I think at least, That's why we never get the end of any of these people's stories. God doesn't want me saying, oh, I want to be like Jairus' daughter, or I want to be like the guy who had the demons cast out of him, or something like that. God wants you to be like you, and wants you to follow the path that he has for you. So then, what do we do this? How do we figure out how the story should end? Well, I think there are several places in the Bible where God, in a more abstract way, sketches out, this is what the trajectory of your life should look like. You know, it's not specific, it's not a checklist, but there's a general sense that there's a number of passages that kind of address this. And one of my favorites is Titus chapter 3. It might be one of those places in the Bible where your pages are still stuck together if you're somebody that wants to follow along. But if you want to follow along, it's just before Hebrews. If you find Hebrews and turn left back to the beginning, you'll find Titus along the way. I'll also have it up on on the screen here for a minute. But here's a way of thinking about this, is that what this passage in Titus is describing, I think, is a classic three-act story pattern. You know, most stories we see have three acts. There's some kind of problem that's introduced, that's act one. And then in act two, there's conflict, or there's, or there's hero- heroism, or there's fighting, or there's something along the way that deals with that problem that was introduced in act one. And then usually in act three, 
you get resolution, you get a new situation or something like that. So, you know, that's the way stories tend to follow. And I think this passage in Titus is following kind of a three-act structure. And where a lot of us get stuck and where the Lord wants to take us today is he wants to take us on to act three. A lot of us just get stuck in the first two acts and we end up going back and forth between problems and conflict and problems and potential resolution and we never move on to act three. And I think to finish up this idea of the whole story, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to experience a complete three-act story. He wants our story to have three acts. So we begin with act one, and that's the problem. So it's Titus chapter three, verse three, and Titus and Paul, this is the apostle Paul writing to his friend Titus, describes just how wrong things could go. He says this, you can see it along the way. He says, he says, look, at one time we too, because he's writing to Titus, Titus is his representative in Crete, the island in the Mediterranean. Um, the progression of the gospel and the church there in Crete is not going super well. Titus is having a hard time. And at the beginning, Paul commiserates with him and talks about, yeah, those people in Crete, they're, they're hard. It's a tough group to deal with. But then he backs them away from that and looks at our common experience. And this is what's in common to all people in all places at all time. He's telling all of our story here at, to some extent. He says, look, at one time we too, all of us, We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. You know, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So that's the problem, is we're a mess. And I know for all of us, this is not our story all the time, but I would guess for for each of us, this has been our story at least at some point. And you notice it's almost poetic here. He has a a number of of pairs where he talks about this and that, then this and that, then this and that. The the first pair there where he talks about being foolish and uh, disobedient, that's the way our mind works. That when we're broken by sin, when we're not walking in the path that God created us for, it messes up the way that we think. And that our ability to understand what's going on, our ability to even understand our own lives is broken and slightly off. And, and a lot of you, I, I know your stories, you can look back to a time that before Jesus was at work in your life where you say, yeah, that's exactly it. It was like there was, I mean, I wasn't mentally ill, but I just wasn't thinking right. And he's talking about that. Then he also talks about that we were deceived and enslaved by the passions and pleasures. And that is... The kinds of stuff that we do, our actions, things that we do with our bodies that are supposed to be good things. You know, it's paths that we go, go down at the beginning that, wow, I thought that was going to be a good idea. I thought this was supposed to be a good thing, only to find out that it's destructive for us. Only to find out that we get struck, stuck in patterns of behavior or consumption that we can't get ourselves out of. And we get stuck. And a lot of us have, have gotten stuck in that particular place. And the result of this, the result of being broken in this way and alienated from being the people that God created us to be, is it makes us go sour. It messes us up. And look at the way he describes it here. We lived in malice and envy. Not, not nice words. Being hated and hating one another. Just not bad stuff. So that's the problem. That's act one. This is what it does to us. 
But guys, here's the good news, and this is what begins to launch us towards Act 2. Do you notice that phrase at the beginning? At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, and all of those things. The good news of the gospel, and I know that the good news of the story that many of you can tell, is that while your lives were once characterized by those things, maybe not all of them, but some of them pretty strongly, that's not your story anymore. The first act is over, and you've moved on to the second and third act of your life. And that's part of the good news of this passage, is that, is that what comes next in the next two acts is what the Lord wants to do to make those things not permanent, not part of who you are, but part of who you were. Not how you do things, but how you did things. And that's the way the Lord wants to do that. So that's the good news in this, and it helps us look forward in what's a rather dark start to a story here. So how does this happen? Well, that's what Act 2 gets into. Act 2, again, is usually whatever the problem is, in Act 2, the possibility of a solution emerges. And so here, this is where the hero would arrive. And the hero does arrive in this story. So here's what happens. He says this. So we're in that bad place, but he says, When the kindness of love and God our Savior appeared. The Lord just is the hero of this story. When he appeared, he saved us. And not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So remember that that previous thing. There were all these pairs of malice and envy and um, foolishness and disobedience. The hero of the story, the Lord, Jesus, brings another pair. Kindness and love come into the situation. And they are far more powerful than envy and anger and foolishness and confusion and the troubled ways that our passions can take us. That there is nothing more powerful in this world than God's kindness and love. And that that is how God's power is best shown. That's what the the sequence we looked at last week in Mark, that's what that was about. If you want to know how God's power is most profoundly shown, it's not in the sea. It's not in casting demons out of people. It's not even raising people from the dead. That the most profound way that Jesus showed his love and his power was when he showed his kindness and his love to that woman who had had no one to talk to for 12 years. So in our story, in Act 2, when the good guy emerges, when the hero arrives, he arrives with kindness and love. And what he does, like all heroes do, is he saves us. He saves us. And that's part of the Christian story. It's not that, hey, you're slightly mismanaging your life, and if you would just listen to Jesus a little bit more, you might be able to handle your life a little bit better. No, the message of the Christian story is that you're at a place where you can't touch the bottom anymore, and you can't swim to the boat. And the only thing you can do is be saved. And that's okay. Because you don't have to do anything to be saved. You notice the way he goes on here? He says it's not because of the righteous things that we did. If you're thinking, man... If i got to count on God to save me, I don't know if I've got enough of what, he's, what he wants from me. Because most of us, you know, we think of God and really being in God's presence, it often feels sort of like going to the principal's office or something like that. It's like, oh, man, or, or somebody, you know, suddenly going through one of your drawers at home that you 
your spouse doesn't even go through. You know, you know it's, it's that kind of idea. I don't, want, I don't want anybody to look at this. And yet, the Lord saves us not because of anything that we've done. It doesn't have to be a situation where he looks down at us and says, hmm, okay, she's, she's done a couple of really good things this week, and he's done several over the last month. These other people, not so much. So I'm just going to save these two. Now, there's nothing that we do that earns God's attention. In fact, the reason God decides to save us is that last phrase. He says it's because of his mercy. It's because of his mercy. And, and the word that's translated mercy there is, is one that has a, a, a big, round meaning. And, and another way to get at this um, that's helpful for me is to think of it as God's affectionate love. That because God likes us, likes us, and is really interested in us, that's why he saves us. Not because he's God and it's his job. You ever kind of think about God that way? Well, it's of course he loves us, you know. It's cats go at pieces of string and, and uh, bugs fly in our faces because that's what they do. And God loves us because that's what he does, right? Because he's God. No. God loves us because he finds delight and affection in each of us. Even when our lives are characterized by all of those bad things, God still finds love and delight and affection for each of us in the midst of that. And that's why the hero arrives. That's why act two happens is because the Lord shows up and he saves us from all of those things that we're stuck on. So the great news is it's not up to you. And did you notice all those people in the previous weeks? They were completely stuck. That demonized man couldn't do anything to save himself. Jairus' daughter was dead, so she was obviously not going to do anything. Um, And the poor woman with, with the bleeding had been bleeding for 12 years and had bankrupted herself trying to heal herself. So it's the people that can't do stuff for themselves, in the places that they can't do stuff for themselves, that God is really at work And he is really at his best. So, here's the question. Why are we still stuck on act one? Why for most of us, you know, when we say at one time we were driven by envy or malice or hatred, that one time was maybe on the drive over here between us and the people in the back seat in our car. Why do we go back and forth between moving into the new life God has for us and back to the other one? Well, there's a simple truth here, and it's this. It's hard to do what you've never done. It's hard to do what you've never done. See, if we're going to fall back into old bad habits, if we're going to fall back into old habits, we know exactly how to be that person, right? If you're going to be back to the, if you were in a bad place a month ago and you decide for some reason, I want to go back to being that guy, you know exactly how to do that, right? You know exactly because we're used to it. But remember, there's no one pattern for how God goes forward for us. So that means if we're going to move into the new life that Jesus has for us, if we're going to move into Act 3, we're going to be in unfamiliar territory. That every new day with the Lord, where we're fully living out the life He has for us, we're doing something we have never done before. We're experiencing things that we have never experienced before. We are hearing from God in a way that we have never 
heard before. And you know what? That's hard to do. That's hard to do. It is much easier. It is much easier to hold on to what we're used to. Um, I experienced this. This is why there's a golf club up here. I experienced this a few years ago. There was a point where I, I was hitting balls with my dad. We were both playing at the time. I don't play anymore. I dedicated my life to prayer and study and service of the poor. Um, but there was a point where we were both hitting balls, and um, my, my dad was okay, and I was better, you know. And, and you're probably thinking, what kind of authority do I have to talk about this? And, and you know, it would be kind of annoying for me to really talk about um, that because some of you, it wouldn't understand, and some of you would be envious of the level I played at, and um, it would just look bad for me to talk to you about the level that I once played at when I was talking to my dad. So that aside, um, it's hard to do what you've never done. So, so my dad's hitting, and I think we're both hitting eight irons. This is, a, this is an eight iron. And I'm looking at my dad, and he's struggling, and I'm like, Dad, your, your grip is kind of weak. Most golfers have a relatively weak grip, which means their knuckles line up down the bottom of the club. And I said, why don't you just try this? Try strengthening your grip, which basically means you, you move your hand clockwise, both of your hands clockwise, and that's called a, a strong grip. Most, and most golfers get way better when they do that. And so I just hit a few this way, and my dad does. And the ball immediately goes higher and straighter and about 20 yards further. And in golf, higher, straighter, and further are all good things, okay? And he goes, huh. And then I said, try it again. He does it again. Again, 20 yards, higher, straighter, and further. He does it a third time. Again, higher, straighter, further, 20 yards. I said, so, Dad, how's that? Now, I understand there's a lot of dynamics here, especially father-son dynamics. You know, there could be some interesting things there. But instead of going, wow, that was great, my dad says, I don't like it. It feels weird. And I'm glad you're laughing, but... Because that was just an eight iron. But how many of us have gotten stuck at that point? Where God is, has, has given us... We've, we've gotten grace and mercy and power to move into a new place. And the old problems start to fall off. But it feels weird. It feels unfamiliar. It's hard to do what you've never done before. So, and, and, and God is gracious within this. I wasn't gracious with my dad. He's like, well, that feels weird. Yeah, dad, it feels weird to hit the ball better and straighter. I don't know why you wouldn't want that. The Lord is a bit nicer with us than I was with my dad. But we get stuck in the same place. We never move beyond bouncing back and forth between act one and act two because it's hard to do what you've never done before. But if you're going to move into the future that God wants for you, that's where it is. It's in that part of the map where there's just white space right now. It's on the part of the course where the short grass is that you're normally not used to being. Okay? It's not where you've been. For God to move into the future that God has for you, we've got to be ready and we've got to be willing to move into there. We know how to be who we've been before. But to move into the future that God has for us, to move into Act 3, we've got to be willing to leave that behind and to move into something new. So he goes on to explain 
again, he gives us another picture of how this looks and how this works. This is the continuing in Titus. He says, all right, so, so maybe this idea of transformation is, is too much for you. So he uses uh, a couple of, of pictures of how it works. He says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So moving into the future that God has for us, that's going to be unfamiliar. But the door through which we get there, this idea of being cleansed, this idea of being renewed. And some of you have experienced a radical enough change and experience of God's power that even rebirth feels about right for you. But most of us, that's not our experience, and God tends to work in more incremental ways. But here's the thing. It's hard to go where you've never gone before. It's hard to do things you've never done before. It's hard to be who you've never been before. But all of us, I'm pretty confident of this, know what it's like to get cleaned up, right? All of us have been super hot, have been super dirty, and the best thing in the world was to get into a shower, to get into a bath, and to get cleaned up. And he gives us that picture because when you're moving into the future that God has for you, that's how it's going to feel. That's how it's going to feel. And, and you know, it even feels a little odd. I, I can remember going backpacking for a week when I was younger and, and the first shower after a week backpacking. It feels actually a little weird to get clean initially. Not to the people around you, but to you. It, it, feels, <laughs> it, it feels a little weird, right? Um, but that's the picture that he has of what it's like to start to move through Act 2. Get it resolved and into Act 3. And, and I love this other thing, you know, that the idea that they didn't have showers. So when you were bathing, you would have stuff poured onto you. God wants to generously pour himself out into each of our lives. That when God is at work, it's not like, oh, I got a lot of people to deal with, so I'm just going to give a little bit here and a little bit there. That when God is at work in our lives, it is always generous. It's extreme. It's, it's overwhelming. And that's what he wants to do. And he does this through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So here's the deal, though, before we move on to what Act 3 looks like. In a group this size, I suspect that some of you guys are still stuck in Act 1. You're still stuck in the problem. You're still stuck in the way that, that sin and brokenness have, have gotten you stuck. And I, and I want you to hear today that there is good news for you. That if you are willing to accept this gift from Jesus, you can be changed. You can be transformed. And you can, in a way that we'll talk about in just a second, be made right. You don't earn it. You don't even actually carry it out. But you do have to accept it. You do. God can't make you do it. You do have to accept him to do that along the way. And some of us are stuck going, yeah, we've kind of let him do it, but because it's easier to do what we did before and it's hard to do something we've never done before, we're just stuck going back and forth between Act 1 and Act 2, between the problem and the solution, and we've never moved on to the new life that he has for us. So I, I want to encourage you guys today to make this, let this be a decisive day where you make that change. So then Act 3, what's it look like? Where's it going? Here's where we go. So he says, so, having been justified by his grace, we become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So that's it. This is Act 3. Now, if you were looking for a detailed 26-point plan to live out the rest of your life in the way that God wants you to, you're going to be a little disappointed. 
What he does instead is gives us some general outlines and some general ideas and tells us where it's going to go. But let me break this down for you. Here's the first thing that he does for you is that you will be justified, not by your own works, but by his gracious choice to do it for you. Justified is a fancy word for being fixed. All of us know that there's something wrong with us. Um, you know, sometimes it's physical. And some of us experience that. You go to a chiropractor, and the chiropractor justifies you. He fixes you. And it's like, oh, I can stand up straight. Hey, feeling in my left leg. It's all good. Right? We've, we've experienced that along the way. Some of us have been fixed in other ways. Um, I'm due for another trip to the optometrist, and so I can drive better at night soon. Um, so we know what it's like to be fixed. But things can go wrong in the way we think, in our hearts, in our behaviors as well. And the Lord wants to do that. Not just adjust us, not just make little tweaks, but he wants to fix us. He wants to make it right. I've seen people on the golf course have clubs that need being justified because the guy will occasionally feel like his 8-iron betrayed him and he punishes the 8-iron by hitting it against the golf cart or a tree or something like that. And the shaft, instead of being nice and straight, suddenly has about an 80-degree bend in it. You've seen people do that to golf clubs before? That golf club needs justification, okay? So God wants to do something similar to us. And, and you may be bent that much. And, and even worse, it may be your fault. You may have been the one that did it to yourself. You knew the right thing to do. You just didn't do it. And that's the hardest one sometimes. I mean, you can blame somebody else, but when you're the one to blame, it's a tough one to get out of. Yet that's precisely where God wants to work. He wants to accomplish Act 3 in your life. Not just the problem, not just the resolution, but the new thing. He wants us to be justified by His grace so that we can become heirs having the hope of eternal life. The idea of being an heir means that we have it, but we don't have it quite yet. That we're established as God's people. We're established as His sons, as His daughters. That we belong to Him in a way that cannot be severed and cannot be broken. And so, He doesn't spell out what that new life is going to be specifically, what the third act is going to be for you and for me and for all of us here. But what he does tell us is that the things that have held us back, he'll fix them. Not by our efforts, but by his gracious power that he wants to extend into our lives. He will justify us. The places where our hearts, where our souls, our behavior, the way we think are bent and messed up, he'll fix them if we allow him to. And knowing that that's the case, we have the hope of eternal life. And what he's really saying here is if you will just let him, here's how your story is. You know that the past has been resolved, and you know that the end is going to be good. And when you have the past resolved and the end worked out, just think of the freedom that you have to live in between. That if you know it's going to turn out okay, the kind of courage, the kind of risks, good risks, the kind of faith that you can show in a life where you know that that's going to be worked out. And when you know that finally, because of God's gracious power, the past is going to come, stop coming up and dragging you back. When you know that the past is in the past and the future is assured, you can live an incredible and powerful and wonderful life. That's why Paul ends up with this phrase. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. And I think it actually is. And so the big question is, so what are you going to do? What's next for you? 
This sounds good. He made me laugh a couple times. He had a golf club on stage. I hadn't seen that before. But what are you going to do? Where are you in that three-act process? The Lord wants you to complete your story, and He wants to work with you along the way. If you're still stuck in Act 1 with the problem, confess it, accept His forgiveness, and let Him take that away. If you're stuck going back between 1 and 2, finally, 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 believe Him and accept the fact that He has accepted you, that He has changed you. And allow your eyes to focus not on where you once were, but up ahead to the person that he wants you to be, to the life that he wants to create with you. Let the courage that only comes from knowing that your past has been addressed and your future is assured, let that take you into Act 3. Let that take you into the life that he has for you. Let him help you finish it up. So break with your past. Let him forgive you. Let him justify you. Know that your past is handled and your future is assured. And then let him begin to work with you to create something beautiful. If you can imagine, imagine the Lord is giving you a notebook, something like this. I'm pretentious. This is a Moleskina notebook. It's called a Cahier, which means notebook in French. But, you know, it sounds cooler, doesn't it, than notebook. So imagine the Lord is giving you a notebook right now that is, here is Act 3. This is what I want for the rest of your life. And if you open it up, this is what it's going to look like right now. It's blank. Not because, oh, I hope that's not important. (laughs) It's blank except for the thing that fell out, yeah. It's blank, not because God doesn't have anything in mind for you, but because he's going to work that out with you. It's blank, not because God doesn't have a plan for you. It's because he doesn't just have one plan for all of us. It's that he has a unique plan for each of us. It's blank, not because God doesn't create. It's because he didn't just create once. That the process of creation continues, and it continues in our own lives. As we tell this story of our own lives with him, the Lord wants to work with us to continue to write and to continue to create something beautiful. 